You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Hi, I'm Amy Lashmitt, and I'm a high schooler part of Parkview Student Ministries, and I will be reading your past, the scripture today. It is Luke 5, 17 through 32. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins have been forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank you, Amy. Thank you very much. My name's Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview. And uh, as you can tell, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And a story that's probably familiar to many of you if you've had some association with the Bible over the years. A powerful story of Jesus healing this man. This is one in another uh, in a long series where Jesus encounters individuals and uh, and has life-changing encounters with them. Going back, we saw this with Peter last week. Uh, we saw it before then uh, and with, with the leper that he heals. Now we have the stories of this paralyzed man uh, with Levi and also with these, uh, these people who end up rejecting him, the Pharisees. And so this passage is, in the end, it's another one in that long line, and yet this one narrows us down on the question we might be asking as we read these stories. Some people responding faithfully to Jesus, others rejecting him questioning him, holding him under suspicion. What, humanly speaking, what's the difference here? What's the difference between these two groups and in this series of stories? And this passage brings that question to a head, and in those last two verses, Jesus actually gives us the answer. So what we're going to do is try to get down to the answer real quick, as quick as I can get us there, and then go read back through the story, because this gives us not only sort of a logical answer to that question, but in the stories of these two individuals, it actually gives us stories of of why and how this actually happens. Why is it that some people respond faithfully to Jesus, pick up their bed, follow him, joyful obedience, and others turn away? 
as we do that, let me pray for us. So Lord, as we open your word, you know we, we are longing. We want to long even more to be a people eager to learn from you. And the greatest tools we can ask for in that are eyes that are open to see what you want to show us, Lord. Um, especially as we, we come to this passage that's full of astounding details that I, I fear might seem like old news to some of us. I pray that you would give them uh, a newness and a brightness and that we would sort of shake the, shake the cobwebs out of this passage for us so that we can really have an encounter with you. Uh, I pray you would open our ears. We can hear you clearly, be listening for you to speak to us through your word. Give us the ability to do that. And Lord, of course, soften our hearts so that we can be transformed at the deepest level. And we pray you would do all this. Uh, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. And so let's, let's, let's just set the scene. Set the scene for this first story, the story of Jesus healing this paralytic. This is a scene full of tension, full of cross currents and intrigue, and it's a clash of authority. Here's what we see. Verse 17, the whole scene gets set. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. To put it simply, all the big shots are here. Okay? You notice it says they're here from all of Galilee. That would be the whole northern region of Israel. All of Judea, that would be the whole southern region of, of Israel. That's all of Israel. And from Jerusalem, which is the capital and where the temple is. Simply put, everyone's here. All the, big, all the big names, all the big shots are here. And why are they here? It says the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Okay, everything else about this scene tells us that there's really no room to sit comfortably. It's obviously standing room only. You cannot make your way through the crowd. What are they doing sitting? Well, sitting was the posture of teaching. Sitting was, was the posture of judgment in the ancient world. And so what are they there to do? They're there to sit and judge Jesus' teaching. They've come from all over the place. They've heard stories about this teacher, this sort of intrepid guy who's doing some amazing things. And they're, they're, they're there to evaluate him, okay? In their minds, this is, Jesus is sort of giving his thesis defense. And they're there sort of to, to decide whether he can continue on or not. It's pretty pompous. It's pretty arrogant. And that's sort of the point. Um, <laughs> and so as we continue on, remember, this is a scene full of dramatic tension. What's going to happen? Um, how is Jesus, especially as we see the paralytic man, how is Jesus going to interact with these, the paralyzed man and this group that wants to evaluate him and exert their authority over him, and then the watching crowd, and all of these people who have spectacularly different needs in this moment? If, you, if it were you, wouldn't you think, I can deal with one of these things at a time, but certainly not both. <laughs> and Jesus, somehow, full of divine wisdom, figures out how to give everyone in the room exactly what they need to hear so that they can come to a real conclusion about who Jesus is. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, so let, let's, keep, let's keep reading. Because the next thing that happens is totally astounding. Uh, in the middle of that tension, a few beams of light... <laughs> start breaking through into the, into the dark room. You know, it's an indoor room. Suddenly, we're getting some light, and suddenly, some men who are probably outside of our line of sight, they're lowering this man. They've taken apart the building. 
without asking permission, I'm guessing, and they're just, they begin to lower this man into the room. And here's Jesus. Uh, can we just enter sort of the absurdity of this moment? Here's Jesus in this, in this highly pitched atmosphere. Okay, you, you've ever seen, have you ever seen like a couple fighting, you know? And like, do you want to go be around them? No, you're like, I'm going to just, you guys deal with that. You know, I'll be over here. No, you don't want to get anywhere near. And yet here he is, he's being lowered into this highly pitched moment. Um, and what's going to happen? Well, what happens is verse 20, Jesus saw their faith. And that's, you see, it's plural there. He's talking about both the man himself and the, the, the people who are lowering him through the roof. And he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Okay, keeping the setting in mind, this is an incredibly provocative statement. Uh, keep in mind that he's going to go on to heal him, which he's done before and which probably in a certain sense would have been seen as a little bit less provocative. He starts there. Why separate these two moments, the moment of forgiving his sins and of giving him physical healing? Why, why would he do that? Well, we see why when he, he actually begins to explain himself. So the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? This is a rhetorical question. It's, it's not really meant to be exactly answered. Uh, the point is that Jesus is saying to them, you came here to examine me, I'm going to go ahead and turn the tables. It's time for me to examine you. Because uh, he leads with this first question. He says, uh, uh, forgive your sins. And immediately they think, who can forgive sins but God alone? Somehow Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he leads them into this sort of logical syllogism. He says, okay, you believe only God can forgive sins. Me too. That's good theology. Only God can look at a lost sinner, someone who's messed up and just their whole life, okay, and look at them and say, unconditionally, I forgive all, all of your sins. Do you realize what authority he's claiming? He's saying all of your sins, paralyzed man, that there's, there's no reason to think that they've ever met before, by the way. All of your sins were ultimately against me. That's quite a claim. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. And I forgive them. Only God can do that. They're right. And that's what Jesus is like a good lawyer. He's saying, okay, so we agree about that. We're in agreement. Okay, well, if you agree that only God can forgive sins, I know that you also would agree that only God can heal the paralyzed, this paralyzed man. Only God could speak a word of power that would bring him from a place of total physical inability to being able to walk, rise and walk out of that room. So if we agree on, number one, and we agree that only God could do this one, number two, watch this. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And guess what? Luke, Luke emphasizes the immediacy. This is not a slow process of healing. He's not a physical therapist. He's not, doesn't do a little operation, give him a little injection. On the spot, physical healing, he stands up and walks and goes home, joy, joyfully obeys. You notice how he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do? He's trying to teach us something about how repentant people respond to God. We'll be back to that in a second. And so Jesus has given the paralyzed man exactly what he needs, and he's also given the Pharisees exactly what they need. He's shown them. He's backed them into a logical corner. He's saying there's only two conclusions that you could possibly come to. Get off the fence. Either you think 
that God is blessing with healing power an utter blasphemer? Or God himself has come down. There's no in-between. Get off of the fence. Decide what you think. I will not come here to be evaluated by you. I am God come in the flesh to evaluate you. Now, before I get too fired up, <laughs> so we, we have to be honest with ourselves because we often, I worry sometimes, we see the Pharisees, we see the P word, okay, they're Pharisees, and we instantly go, ah, someone that's not like me. The, the fact is that all of us, we have this tendency within ourselves, and we'll see this more and more as we go along here, to sort of hold Jesus at arm's length, waiting to see whether we, we can really trust him with that kind of authority. Can we really trust him with that kind of say over my life? Jesus, first of all, he cares to give you a good answer to that question, but you're not going to encounter truth if you hold him back until you finally decide that he's willing, that you're willing to give yourself to him. You'll discover that as you give him authority. And so here's, the good news is, here's what happens with the Pharisees. It says, verse 25, immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on. He went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all. His amazement seizes them all. And they glorified God. They're filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And there's nothing that Luke says that would make us think that the Pharisees were not part of that amazement. They're amazed. They see what happened, and they go away seeming to have no concerns. Okay, success. Paralyzed man, forgiven, free, healthy, glorifying God, full of joy. The crowd, both Pharisees, teachers, you know, they're amazed, and they join in this glorifying, awe-struck situation. And this is where our passage gets really interesting. Because immediately, Luke gives us the same story, the same form, okay, but with a totally different outcome. In the first story, we have Jesus who encounters an individual who's stuck. Stuck in sin, stuck in their mess. And Jesus gives them exactly what they need. And then the Pharisees responded, okay, and they grumbled, and, they, and then Jesus responded to them too. In the first case, it was the paralytic. In the second case, it's going to be a tax collector. In both cases. Now, notice, even, even down to some of the simple literary details, the way that Luke tells the story, both of them are sitting and Jesus, lying down, and Jesus says, rise, follow me. And he rises and follows him. Both of them, they have all these similarities because Luke wants us to see why they're different, why the Pharisees respond differently. Um, so, let's continue to dive in. Uh, in verse 27, it says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi <clears throat> sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. This is what the Pharisees have a problem with. In Jesus' time, God's people were ruled by the Roman Empire, and uh, Rome had, of course, instituted taxes on Israel, and they did this by something they called tax farming. And what they would do is they basically had tax contracts. They knew they needed to get a certain amount of money from certain areas. And so they would sell them to the highest bidder. And so, <clears throat> <excuse me. clears throat> so they would sell the, these contracts to Jewish people, members of their own society, who would go collect the money plus whatever they wanted to make for their own salary. They kind of got to set their own uh, little deal. <clears throat> and uh, along with their overhead, whatever. And then once they gave the required amount that they had agreed to raise as they bought that sort of authority to collect taxes from Rome, then the rest of it was for them. 
basically, they were known for taking much more than was fair, uh, for living greedy, extravagant lifestyles. Um, And in essence, a tax collector, to put it simply, was a person who had chosen as their profession to extort their countrymen to fund the invading army. They weren't popular. Uh, in fact, in the social and moral economy of the first century uh, in, in Jewish society, these would have been close to the lowest of the low. If the paralytic man was a man who was suffering from the worst of the worst physical conditions, the tax collector was a person who was suffering from the lowest of the low moral and social situation. But Jesus sees him. You see that word? Uh, he went out and saw a tax collector. The NASB, NASB translated, he looked at him. It's something more than the simple word for looking. He, he examined him. He watched him. He had his eye on Levi, and he calls him, follow me. And he does. Not only that, we see again, here's a good example of what it looks like to faithfully respond repentantly to Jesus. He invites Jesus to a feast in Jesus' honor. A great feast. This would have been an expensive event. Uh, He invites all of his fellow tax collectors, all of his fellow sinners. He says, come. Who knows? Maybe you too can be affected by Jesus in the way that this amazing man has changed my life. But news of the party gets back to the Pharisees in verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes, they grumble against his disciples. Grumble. By the way, same word there. It's translated in the Old Testament for when the Jewish people, they're being led out out of Egypt And what do they do against Moses and against God? Grumble, okay? Being reminded. Why why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Let's understand what offended them. What offended them is that Jesus was drawing near to sinners. Might seem obvious. But, But what they expected was that a righteous man, a righteous person, would avoid sinful people at least until they had cleaned up their act a little bit. Sure, you can come to Jesus. Do some stuff first. I mean, put in a little bit of effort. Uh, Their understanding was that progress as a spiritual person preceded proximity to God. To get to God was primarily a matter of you cleaning yourself up, taking a spiritual shower, in their case a literal shower, making some progress, and then coming near. Uh, In fact, their idea was that God would not let you come near until you proved that you were basically good enough to be near him. They did not learn this from the Bible in particular. Um, I I know this because every one of us in this room is born with this same gut level instinct understanding that coming to God is primarily a matter of us leveraging our best efforts to pole vault our way up to him. Jesus puts that idea firmly to rest in verse 31. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come. Here is Jesus giving his thesis Here is Jesus telling us exactly what he's all about. We better listen up. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is saying 
the divine physician has come, and I have all the world, all the time in the world, and all the space in my schedule for people who are sick with sin. Doctors don't fill their waiting rooms and waste their time with healthy people who have no need of them, who don't feel bad and don't want help. And Jesus isn't going to fill his dinner, dinner table with nice, spiritually upper-class people who, ha- who feel no practical need for his spiritual authority and power in their lives. And, and of course, this, this naturally is confusing because the consistent message of the Bible is that everyone on earth needs exactly that. Everyone on earth needs spiritual help deeply. And so what, what is he saying? Remember the prophet Isaiah? Here's, here's a good one. No one is righteous. No, not one. So what's he saying? I, I'm not here to call righteous people. He's saying no one is righteous, and so I'm not here to call the righteous people. I'm here to call sinners. And so as long as you put yourself in that category, I'm here for you. If you can't find a way to put yourself in that category because you're so stuck on your own self-righteousness, you'll never understand me. The only thing that will keep you from coming to me is you. Jesus takes out his spiritual sword and divides the whole world in two, right through the hearts of every single person in the world. Only two ways to respond to God, only two ways to live fundamentally. There are people who see themselves as spiritually well, kind of middle class people, most of us, could be doing better, could be doing worse, better than some of those people, That's especially the Pharisees thought, maybe worse than those people, but nicely in the middle. There are people who see themselves as spiritually sick, spiritually needy. There are those who see themselves as righteous and those who see themselves as sinners. And the way you categorize yourself, take, do not be deceived, Parkview Church. Every single one of us, we are not sitting on the fence. We are in one of those two this morning. One of those two categories that Jesus has just spelled out for us. And by the way, in case you were wondering, throughout the Gospels, Jesus seems to be able to do hardly anything with people who find themselves to be spiritually okay. Jesus can't do much with spiritually middle-class people who are looking to Jesus to leverage themselves into a 10% better life with a bit of spiritual goodness. But Jesus can do miracles with people who come to Jesus with all of their needy, broken, hungry, sin-sick hearts. And, and which side we're on will not just determine whether we come to Jesus for the first time to get our sins forgiven, like that paralytic man once and for all, but whether we, if you're here and you've been a Christian for 20 years, will make any ongoing progress in the Christian life. Because the reality is, Jesus is saying that progress does not precede proximity because we, we are like the paralyzed man. <laughs> we cannot even army crawl our way up to him. We need, we need every help possible that God would provide that God might lower us before the king of kings. 
the ongoing pattern of growth in the Christian life is not a pattern of you flexing your spiritual muscles until you finally get to the point where you don't need Jesus anymore. It's just the opposite. It's a point of God bringing you to a place of ultimate weakness where you finally see ongoing growth in the pattern of the Christian life is realizing I need Jesus more and more and more and more. I need him. I need him. I need him more than I did last year. I need him more than I did last week. An ongoing understanding that coming to him is to come to the source of any power to actually change. To put it simply, proximity to Jesus produces progress. Now doesn't precede it. What every one of us in this room needs more than anything else in the entire world is to get as close to this man as possible. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't wait. And you might have missed it, but this, this entire passage has been making this exact same point in story form. I, I just referred to it. Let's go back and look at this, these two men's stories, not from the perspective of Jesus or from the perspective of the crowd or from the perspective of the unbelieving Pharisees, but from their stories themselves. Remember, we go back to that room. Here we are, Jesus with his thesis defense <laughs> and being lowered through the ceiling is an example for us of what it would look like for us to come to Jesus in the way that he can actually do something with. Consider that tension-filled scene. Remember, in Jesus' day, disability was not sort of a morally neutral category. It was a morally charged category. Remember the disciples seeing the man who is blind and they asked Jesus, uh, why was this man born blind? Because of his sin or because of his parents? You remember what Jesus says? Neither. Um, but for them, they saw, most people in their society saw disability as a sign of God's curse. They had done something, someone in their family, someone in their town, they don't know, did something, and, and this was a sign of tremendous shame. This man doesn't leave his house unless he absolutely has to. He is not here to be seen. I am sure his greatest hope is that he w- Jesus would have seen him on a back alleyway where he could have had some privacy and some dignity so that the whole town wouldn't have been gawking at him in the middle of this highly pitched scene. He does not want this attention. Why would he do this? Why would he let his friends do this? He's desperate. Can you imagine being unable to move yourself and being lowered? I mean, it's not professional medical equipment. It's not a lift. It's not... This is some, it's some rope they found lying on the side. You think they knew that they were going to do this plan? It's, it's been thrown together at the last second. And they're saying, look, we, what if he tips over? What if he falls down on the ground? What's worse? I mean, what if, what if he gets lowered before Jesus? Jesus is kind of having an important moment. What if this guy Jesus instead of receiving me with kindness and, and, and looking in with pity on me, what if he says, what in the world are you doing? Can you, I'm talking to important people right now. Do you see how vulnerable he has made himself? Does Jesus really have time for my interruption? Jesus locks eyes with him. He's lowered on a mat and he's lying prone 
before Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Man, your sins are forgiven you. That word's important, man. The NASB says friend. It's a word of warmth. It's a word of, it's intimate. It's kind. It's what you call someone you've known forever. It's welcoming. In the middle of this man's moment of great fear and shame, with a glimmer of hope, in the midst of Jesus' tense encounter with the supposedly important people, this man, the word this man hears is not a word of divine rejection. It's not a word of shame, which he's so used to. It's a word of divine hospitality and kindness. And God is presenting this man to you through the Bible as a paradigm, as a model to convince you that though Jesus is the high and holy God, he is the God who has come down low where sinners are. Are you willing to be lowered through the roof? Are you willing to see yourself as having everything in common with this man? Not even able to bring yourself, not able to crawl on your knees, dependent, prostrate, prone before him, your only hope. Here's what you'll find. If you come to Jesus like a paralyzed sinner in need only of sheer grace, knowing you couldn't even get up to him if you tried, he will not reject you. He will not shame you. He will not rub your nose in it. He will not ask how you got in this mess in the first place. He will treat your tender soul with gentle care. Jesus, the God of the universe, become a man, will call you friend. What are you waiting for? Now, let's, uh, we have to also consider Levi. Levi the tax collector, Levi the social outcast, Levi the traitor, who, with whom there's no doubt he's complicit in his own suffering. He did this. He got himself here. We don't know how. We don't know why. As we look at him, it's very interesting because his name is Levi. <laughs> we find out later he has a more full name. This was probably, it's part of his name. It's called Matthew, probably called Matthew the Levite. He was a man from the tribe of Levi. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'd know that the tribe of Levi was a tribe of priests. He had a job. His job was to stand in the temple and mediate God's grace to broken people who came to him to be cleansed, to come near. And instead, he's sitting in the tax booth extorting God's people on behalf of a broken and sinful rule. What happened, Levi? What, ha what made it worth it to, to stand there and endure the scorn and shame of everyone who walked by? How had he fallen so far? Do you feel like Levi today? 
Surely no one grows up dreaming of ruining their life in the way that he clearly had. Somehow he knew about Jesus. We don't know how. We don't know what. But what we know is that he despaired of his past life. And when Jesus, the rabbi, looked at him and said, follow me, he left everything. He left everything. He was prepared to give up everything to follow Jesus. And what happens, uh, what happens when broken sinners come to Jesus like that? Well, it turns out that proximity to Jesus does indeed produce progress. Because Levi, Levi has received now Jesus' offer to redignify him, to offer him a way out. Jesus has snatched Levi into his life raft of salvation out of an ocean of sin and shame that he had made for himself. And Levi wants to bring as many of his friends with him as he possibly can. And so Levi, here's, here's an image of repentance. Levi takes his ill-gotten money that he stole from all of his fellow uh, countrymen and throws a massive party in honor of Jesus. He honors Jesus. He honors his name. Uh, and he includes as many friends as possible. He thinks maybe they can get in on this deal too. He's doing for his friends what the paralyzed man's friends did for him. He's carrying them to Jesus. He's leveraging all of his resources, even the ones that he's just ashamed of. And he says, whatever I can do, can I get more people in this deal? If there's hope for me, there must be hope for anyone. He brings them to the only one that can really help him. And we know, just like I said, Levi has another name, Matthew. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of how his story of coming to Jesus, not Jesus waiting around until Levi decided to leave his tax booth until he called him to be his disciple. Jesus said, follow me. And then he left. He left his life of sin and he went on to be, of course, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He wrote one of the four gospels, not an insignificant thing, and he courageously died as a martyr for his faith. We, we learn from church history. Proximity produced progress. Is it producing progress in your life? Do you, do you see yourself filled with obedient joy? <laughs> do you so, see yourself bringing other sinners to Jesus, leveraging all your resources? How can I get, if there's hope for me, there must be hope for anyone. How can I get them in on this? Have you become needy enough to let God rearrange your life like that? And this is, this is so near and dear to us as a church. Uh, this is our mission, this is our vision, to be a whole church forming whole disciples of Jesus, deeply formed, looking around, wondering, who can I bring in as I honor Jesus? Uh, this passage shows us those things coming together beautifully. As we, as we get closer to this man, this divine man, who not only offers to forgive our sins, but to turn us into the people we most desperately need to be, and when we come near him, we actually begin to want to be. We long to bring others to the party. That's what we're all about here. And so the great hopeful truth of this passage is that as we come to Jesus, we see God has paid the price to have that level of proximity to us. That was only possible because of his cross. And that's what we get to celebrate now. God has not just invited us to a one-time meal where we get to enjoy being around him every once in a while. God has paid the price for deep communion with us. And this meal we're about to enjoy together, this meal of communion, is our reminder of God's divine hospitality to bring us near so that he can change us. So, if you don't have one of these cups, 
Ned and Savannah are here. They're going to uh, give you one. You can raise a hand and they'll give you one. And so this meal, this meal is a reminder of God's divine kindness to bring us near through his cross, the cross of Christ. Do you know what happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus was lowered to the deepest depths. He was treated like a sinner. He absorbed your shame. You can be sure today, and God wants to remind you today, that if you come to him like that paralytic, man, like a humble sinner, do you know what you'll find? God is waiting for you at the bottom of the pit. He came down, and at, at a terrible cost, he came down so that he could join you in it. And so I'm, I'm going to lead us. We'll have a little time of prayer here as we just reflect on what we've heard from the Bible. So let's close our eyes together if you're willing. And pray with me. Lord, we, we marvel at the goodness of Jesus and ask you to reveal yourself to us in a new way this morning. We don't need just good words about you alone or good feelings about you alone. We need, we're hungry for a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit to come convict us of sin. Lord, show us where we have, we have really functionally refused to give you the authority that you deserve. Where we've stood on our own resources, we've done everything we can to keep ourselves from being truly needy for you. We've, we've kept ourselves out of the category of sinner because it's too, too uncomfortable for us, it's too damaging to our sense of self-worth, and it's too risky for us to really let you be that in charge of us. Forgive us. And, and in this moment, assure us of that forgiveness. Assure us that if we come to you like this, like this man, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our inability, in the midst of our moral ineptitude, that you will call us friend. Give us your grace, Lord. Remind us of the cross. Remind us of the cross as we take this meal together. Remind us that these things are true because of what you have done. Hmm. Amen.